we're continuing on in the plagues. I put here, have you ever had things go from bad to worse? Right? It starts bad and it goes worse. The other team is better than you and you're not sure how you can win and then your star player gets hurt. That's bad to worse. Your kids get a stomach virus and then you and your spouse come down with it. Bad to worse. Things went from bad to worse before you even wrap your mind around the bad. Have you ever had that scenario? And that's what I want you to have in your mind when you think of Pharaoh and Egypt. The situation is bad for them. One, the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh is wreaking havoc on his nation. Um, He is a god in his mind. He does not want to submit to God at all. God is mercifully bringing the plagues. We're actually going to see that. God's going to even say that to him. Uh, there's some verses where it says he raised him up. And in Hebrew, that has a, a, when I say a double meaning, it can either be I raised you up or I've kept you up through this so that my glory can be displayed, but also his mercy is displayed by not annihilating uh, Egypt. Think about what God could have done to them. He could have wiped them off the map and then Israel is free. But he instead, in his mercy, has been building. And I use the word bad to worse because I want you to recognize that it's going to get worse. But we live in a world that will look at God and these plagues and how God deals with with the world. And they're going to say God is a dictator. God is mean. God is cruel. Uh, Nowadays, people are more concerned that the animals died than the people died uh, during that time. And they're all caught up in something. And what they miss is they don't see the big picture and they don't see God's mercy. And so one of the things (coughs) I hope we'll be able to do, because we're going to finish the nine plagues um, tonight, is that we can see how God was merciful. So, you know, the blood, you go to the frogs, you go to the gnats and notice that A lot of fish died, but they didn't lose their livestock. The frogs were just wretchedly irritating, right? Because you had frog bread and frog soup and frog everything. And then you went to the gnats who are biting, little biting insects. And so they're very irritating. You kind of keep working your way through. The flies, remember the gnats were biting at you. The flies actually bite. They actually leave a mark. They have pinchers. The livestock, and then we saw a disease come into the livestock, and we start seeing death now. Well, we work into this final three, and I'm going to get to the boils because we didn't get that finished out, but you see it's been growing, right? So we just went to livestock, and the intensity is building because now they have a disease, and as we move to boils, we're going to see now physical affliction that's on on the people. Uh, Now there's pain and agony there's there's a disease that's with you boils and and i was just been reading through job because when we finish the spiritual boot camp i'm diving into the book of job for our sermon series and and so we'll be going through that book to get an understanding of it it's some of the most beautiful literature of the ancient world uh poetry through the majority of it uh it's a book that i don't know if you've ever read through it it takes quite a bit of wrestling to get through i'll be honest with you I treat, I'm treating Job like I did Ecclesiastes. So about four years ago, I was avoiding the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm like, that's just, I just don't want to, I don't want to dive that deep. I feel like I have to keep swimming to the bottom there. So I just went and preached a series to it because it forced me to, to do that. I'm doing the same thing to myself on Job. So I'm diving into Job. I can't stand the book because I hate thinking about suffering. I hate the idea that is vested in Job, but it is a walk through reality. I think we all can attest to that. 
And so we're going we're gonna to take that journey together. We're going to walk through Job. And there's something about Job that speaks to real life. It speaks to uh, not a Hollywood story, uh, not a fake thing. It talks about the bigger picture, what goes on in the universe. It talks about the suffering of a righteous man. Uh, it talks about how we question God. It's learning through trust. And Job, in the end, learns to trust. I say all that because Job ends up with a lot of these boils and he's scraping his skin. And so as we see some of these plagues and as we can tie to other portions of Scripture, we start realizing the agony that Job went through, but they are going to be agonized with the boils. Well, I'm going to flip over here and it just gets worse. Uh, We're going to get to hail, locust, and the darkness. And the hail is the longest segment about a plague that God talks about because we go from boils which afflict humans with painful sores to hail that will kill them if they're outside to locusts that are going to destroy any hope of a crop so you're staring at what famine we don't we don't connect to that Uh, our current president's helping us connect to that a little bit um in the sense of no nothing on the shelves but not quite right but when you're an agricultural society and all your livestock is getting killed off and then the locusts come and finish off anything else you have, you're staring at a very bad, bad year. But don't forget, they get their seed not from Ace Hardware or somewhere else. Their seed comes from their crop. So if you have no crop, you have no seed. So you're not staring at famine for one year. You're staring at famine for an extended season. Um, What's fascinating, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but God's going to annihilate Egypt And the only thing that Pharaoh has left is his army. And he ends up wasting them in the Red Sea. And so he literally brings the last component of his pride to the sea and God. And again, don't get upset at God. Recognize God's mercy. Could have wiped that army out before Pharaoh showed pride. He chose to chase Israel. He chose to go through the sea. But we're going to finish out tonight talking about the plagues that wipe out Egypt. Now, before I dive into um, the plagues of hail, locusts, and dark, we're going to look at the boils. Um, It's hard to get an exact timetable for all the plagues. When I was a kid, I read them and I thought it was nine days, you know, one, two, three, it's just going straight. If you read slightly more than just the plagues, right, you know that one takes seven days, one is dark for three days. Actually, I don't know if there's any indication that the darkness left before the 10th the plague came because there's no verse that I'm noticing right out the bat that says he took the darkness away. Um, you, you work down through this and these plagues take place over time. Um, there's an indication by the list of crops destroyed and the initiation of the plagues. If the initiation of the plagues was during the normal flooding season, which most commentators think was that time frame, then... It is about several months, possibly up to nine months, that these plagues span a time frame. And so it's hard to place the boils. It's very easy to place the hail. Hail is in January because of the two crops they list. They, they know that one crop would be destroyed at that time. And the other crop would have been safe, it would have been planted, but it would have been okay. Boils is falling sometime after this disease with livestock. And We're seeing this close in on the hardening of Pharaoh after livestock disease. Moses and Aaron just grab soot from the furnace. Now, remember how the cycle works, right? One, it seems like the first of the plagues, he goes to the river. There seems to be some warning. And then the third one oftentimes just happens. It's just quick. And so 
I find this one fascinating. Moses and Aaron go into the fireplace. Don't think our fireplace. Think a kiln uh, for making bricks, most people think. What do the Israelites have to do? Make bricks. This represents what he's done to God's people. They both get a fistful. Moses is the only one that tosses it into the air. I can't think of one that's more symbolic than this. It becomes a fine mist and spreads through the country. And what it causes is a horrible skin condition. Um, This is the first plague attacking the physical health of the Egyptians. Now, I know the insects were biting, but that's an outside force biting in. This one is now a disease on you. So the cows and livestock had a disease. Now you get a disease. And these aren't just... um, a minor skin outbreak that wouldn't have registered with them. Um, they were used to minor skin outbreaks. You imagine cleanliness wasn't the same as it is today. I doubt you could buy the next cream at Walmart when you had the first bump show up. So th- these people had dealt with minor breakouts. Um, it's some type of skin anthrax is what they usually thought uh, and pretty severe. They say it created burning abscesses that would be festering sores, extremely irritable, painful and itchy and what it did is it caused complete debilitation it's here that the magicians with all the dark occult powers are left unable to even stand in pharaoh's presence and that's important these guys even though they haven't been able to duplicate the plagues since the i think it was the frogs they can't duplicate them at all they're still standing there because they represent power so pharaoh's all about presence right he's a god and these are his priests, so to speak, right? The occult leaders. And they're there standing in in with him. They are the confidence in my religion, quote unquote, the pastors of his church. And boils are so bad on them, they can't stand anymore. And you watch with the boils how God removes his priests or his pastors or his, his people that preach his religion. They've been there with their pride with the connection to the gods. They've been there the whole time. Even though they couldn't replicate the gnats, he wanted them around him. What does that sound like? Every, every bad guy needs his what? Entourage, right? Got to have your boys with you. Got to have your gang along. Well, what is God doing here? He's wiping out his gang. He's taking out the confidence boosters, right? Have you ever watched kids and one kid won't do something, but you get a group of his friends and what happens? convinced to do something, right? No kid, I I mean, this is kind of a sad story, but there's this kid that ate a worm because he was egged on by his friends and it paralyzed him from, I think, the chest down. And obviously his friends feel terrible, but it was something in that worm that caused me paralyzed. Who eats a worm on their own? I hope nobody. I mean, (laughs) if your kid's eating worms, you might want to take them. Why are you doing that, buddy? You need more steak? We'll get you steak, you know? Um, but they're egged on by friends, they'll do it, right? The, the, so you can see how Pharaoh's entourage is a critical part of his pride, the bolstering. Because does he have anything to back his pride? Anything about what's taken place? Has he won any battle yet? Nothing. He's not won a single thing. And so it's a little hard to pinpoint what exact God this hits uh, on, on Egypt. There's a God, Imhotep, but it looks like he came to be a God after, after the Exodus. I mention that because depending on your date of Exodus, if it was later, if you took a later date, and again, I mentioned that at the beginning, I'm a 
1446 BC, around that time frame. Some people are more 1200 BC, so 200 years later. And so depending on when you took it, you could <coughs> see that Imhotep is, is confronted there as a god of medicine. But there is a god named Shekmet. It's a lion-headed goddess, actually, that was responsible for epidemics and the cure of them, who obviously would have been confronted with an epidemic of boils that no one can get rid of. And so whether it's the healing God that came later, I land on a earlier departure, 1446. And so I look more to the Shekmet, the idea of a God who causes plagues and gets rid of plagues. And I say to myself, well, that makes sense that God just confronted that God there. Um, the Egyptian god system is, is very complicated. So not only do you have a national god system, not only do they worship their pharaoh, then you go to Memphis, and they have a certain god system that works there, and they have their special gods, and it moves through history. You're talking about a very old civilization, and when you worship false gods, guess what you can do when you worship false gods? Make new ones, yes, exactly. So if you want a different god, at some point you find a different god. If you don't like frogs, you change it to rabbits. I don't know. Whatever you do, you can make up gods. When you're making them up, you keep making them up. And so through history, it changes, and then you try to place it. Uh, the neat, neat thing or the difficult thing about ancient history, and a lot of people say, well, there's nothing in Egyptian history about the plagues. There's nothing about defeat. Well, there's rarely anything about defeat. When they lose... They were the masters at scrubbing history, all right? There's, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures from Stalin's era in Russia, and there's pictures of him with his henchmen, and then 20 years later, he kills that henchman. He was the original Photoshop guy. You'll see that picture later on, and henchman's gone. It's just Stalin sitting there on a boat. You're like, wait a second. How did they do that? Well, obviously, he scrubbed the details, right? And dictators always do that. They're history rewriters. Well, Egyptians' pharaohs were not going to have you chisel in stone how they got defeated by somebody. That was against the rules. You chisel in stone when he what? Wins. You don't chisel losses. That's why there's a lot of gaps in their history, because they're not going to talk about what went wrong. And so a lot of this you wouldn't have coming in, but um, here's how it closes, though. And I want to get to this so I can dive into the other ones. It says towards the end of that plague, and I think it was um, verse 12 there. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. Now, we've been talking about this for a while, but this is kind of the first official time that Scripture is blatant about who hardened somebody's heart. So far, his heart has been hardened, but no indication of whether it was God or not. Could have been. We don't know. Pharaoh has hardened his heart. We're going to see later that the officials have their hearts hardened. But here in, in this plague right here on the boils, we're at six deep. We have a very specific reference in Scripture that God hardened his heart. And I, I wrote something here. Uh, there cannot be a worse place to be in all eternity. Nothing could be worse than to have God hardening your heart. As one author wrote, this is a judicial action against one who had ignored repeated warnings, refused to acknowledge the significance of the signs displayed before him, and even gone back on his word. The man who had repeatedly persisted in his stubbornness is now deprived of the ability to do anything else. And I want you to put this in your mind. Nothing could be worse for any individual than that verse right there. 
because there is no more opportunity in that moment for Pharaoh. Now, it's amazing to me, and this is where people say, oh, God's not fair. Look what he did to Pharaoh. Do you realize that later on, Pharaoh hardens his own heart again? What does that tell you? God let him make a decision again. Can you, that's God's mercy. This man is exhausted. Any, any right to any mercy, it's done, it's over. But God, again, is going to be merciful to him. And you're going to see it go back and forth now. And again, we talked about that at the beginning. Uh, it is something that you'll have to wrestle with in your mind. Uh, it's a reality. Uh, I didn't write it, so you, can, I can't, you can't argue with me on it. Um, you can argue with Scripture. But here's the reality that you have to rest in. God is fair. Humans aren't fair. We're not merciful. We're not loving. We're not kind. We're not long-suffering. That's all attributes of God. But I just want us to pinpoint from the human perspective, as you look at Pharaoh in that moment, you can look with absolute pity on someone who's had their heart hardened by God. It is the worst place to be in the world. Nothing could be worse than that. Now, we move on to some more plagues we're going to watch. And I want you to remember that. This is plague six. Now, God continues to plague Pharaoh. And I know it is punishment, but really it is prodding is the better word to use there. God is not being mean to Egypt. God is increasing the intensity. So as we move from the boils, where Pharaoh's heart has now been hardened by God, if I'm God at that point, and the decision I make is that I'm done with this guy, his heart is hardened, what is my next step, typically? Or what would your next step be? Get rid of him. I'm done. It's over. This game over, right? End. Whatever God can, obviously God can do whatever he wants, right? They, in the New Testament, it says we literally sit in, in his hand. Our very breath is in the hand of Jesus Christ. So how quickly can God annihilate all of humanity? No more breath. It's done. So every time you draw a breath, it is whose mercy? It's actually God's mercy. What do we deserve? Death, destruction. We deserve everything we see here. So as God pours this in, as we see it go from bad to worse, I want you to not get lost in the intensity of the plague and miss the mercy of God. Because what this is, is God's mercy extended to Egypt. Who knows that Egypt will not listen? God does. And yet he still does all this, which I just, I, I can't wrap my mind completely around it, but I want you to think in your mind, and, and this is interesting, I was reading through another commentator, and because uh, in Genesis, we got, and when I say we maybe were fixated on God's grace and mercy, we saw his mercy through all of that. Humanity blows it, and what does God do again? New chance. And humanity blows it, what does God do again? New chance. What does God do when, when Adam and Eve sin? What's the first thing he comes out of the gate with? A redemptive plan. And so what do we see from God? Grace and mercy, grace and mercy. I didn't always see grace and mercy in the plagues. I thought it was like, we've got the better player than you, kind of idea. We're going to whoop up on you. There's no chance. But you see that, that that same theme of grace and mercy is running through this. And so as we see the intensity increase, I do want you, 
um, to recognize God's mercy here. So as we move into hail, I wrote this down. It's almost like Pharaoh is begging for more pain. Bullishly obstinate in the face of reality. And thus we come to the final grouping of three, which begins with hail. And this is from 13 to 35 is the conversation about hail. It's the longest description of a plague. It's the first, by the way, that gave a warning on how to avoid the effects of the plague. It is an extremely harsh plague. And Moses says for the first time, it is going to rain hail and it's going to kill man and beast. You need to what? What does he tell them? Get in shelter. So if you go into shelter, you don't die. If you stay outside, you do die. And here's the fascinating thing. And and I think multiple guys wrote this. They said, think of the gospel message. When you present the gospel message to somebody, it is believe that message and you have what? And don't believe it. You are condemned to the same response. God's word, you can heed it or you cannot. They are not heeding it. Some do, some don't. Uh, This one is written about in Psalm 78. 47 through 48, he says, He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave up their cattle also to the hail and their flocks to hot thunderbolts. And I just want you to think for a second, how hot was the lightning? I mean, just this is a storm of all storms. I think when I think hail, I think really heavy ice, you know, and then you think it's really a lot of big ice. And then you realize it's thundering and lightning and they're referring to them as fire from heaven. That's lightning like we haven't seen it. Uh, Go on to Psalm 105, 32 and 33. It talks about again, he gave them hail for rain. That's an interesting analogy, right? When it rains, that's a lot of water, right? Could you imagine killing hail at that, at that um, level? Do you think ice built up on the ground at that amount of ice coming down? I just want you to kind of picture how intense this was Um, and flaming fire in their land. This is not a storm that you enjoy watching. This is not a peaceful reading by the fire. Oh, God, I got the cattle in. Let's watch the hail come down. I mean, you're petrified, lightning and fire coming to the ground. He smote their vines also and their fig trees and break the trees of their coast. And we find with the hail, I put an increased intensity. Look at 13. And the Lord said unto Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him. Now, it doesn't say he's at the river. The implication is back to the river. What does Pharaoh do in the morning? He comes down to worship. Second round of, or third round of three, same place. Now, who is approaching whom? Moses is approaching Pharaoh. Yet again, bringing God's word there. Um, going on from there, he says, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me, for I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart. That's significant. All my plagues, that word plagues is a different Hebrew word, never used. Only time it's used is right here. God is telling Pharaoh very clearly, I am turning the dial up. And that's something to keep in mind there. And upon thy servants and upon thy people that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I'll stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. That's a pretty, pretty intense warning, right? When you're cut off from the earth, what do you think that means to somebody? <laughs> it's over. He says, I'm going to come to your heart. I'm going to reach your heart. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, God is right there. I'm gonna, you're going to feel this. And so what you have to realize, this plague is going to devastate their agriculture. 
It's going to be deadly to livestock and human alike. God warns in the unique use of all my plagues that this plague is different. Uh, The word points to this. It's a word for strike or kill. So I'm going to send my strikings and my, my afflictions to death on you. Now, we view that as threatening, but I want to spin it again. God is warning, again, Pharaoh, that you have got to let my people go. God then gives an insightful observation, 16 and 17, and in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up for to show him thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Yet, as yet, exaltest thou thyself against my people that thou will not let them go. And it's a question mark, by the way. He says, and you're still thinking you can resist my people and me? And he says, I've raised you up. Now, that word is raised thee up, or I have raised you up, in Hebrew points to two possibilities. Uh, if you have, it depends on what kind of Bible you have. Some of your Bibles will have footnotes on them. And if you go there, sometimes there's going to be a footnote, and it's going to bring you down. It's going to have an alternate translation. The Hebrew there has two translations. It can mean raise you up, and it can also mean that I, in, in, in the context of raise you up, it can be I've made you king. Those two tie together. They're the same basic meaning. But there's another context to the Hebrew, and it means I've spared your life so far. I have spared you so far to do this. Paul actually quotes this verse in Romans 9, 17, and either context would work. Because in that portion of Romans 9, Paul is talking about, fascinating enough, God's mercy and God's sovereignty. So in that chapter, Romans 9, the verses right before 17 talk about God's mercy. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then the verse after that talks about how God is in control and he's sovereign. And I want you to see something that God's mercy and sovereignty run together and they're tied like this. It's not one or the other. Uh, This is a theological point that uh, is deep enough that I'm not jumping off the diving board tonight. Okay? I just want to mention this to you. A lot of times when I'm talking to people, they either negate God's mercy for his sovereignty or negate his sovereignty for his mercy. And I just want you to realize in the Hebrew language, which I don't know well at all, um, took a year of it. I just know it's, it's a very intricate language. So where Spanish and English have verb tenses where you have past, present, future and all these things, Hebrew doesn't deal in time. They deal in mood. And so different moods will express past, present, or future, but it's a very, I say, nuanced or beautiful language because it catches the emotion. And so when God uses a Hebrew word that can mean either mercy or sovereignty, it wasn't done on accident. When Paul quotes it via the Holy Spirit, in the middle of a passage, it says mercy and sovereignty, and right there in the middle, he quotes Exodus that uses a word that means either mercy or sovereignty. I've spared your life or I've literally made you this so that I can do what I'm doing to you, it's because it comes together. I mention that because you're going to see through the Old Testament theologically significant terms like this that come up that let you know that God's sovereignty doesn't negate his mercy and his mercy doesn't negate his sovereignty. Uh, This is my famous, or not famous, we'll make it famous, why not? This is my favorite quote when it comes to that. When you're struggling with God's mercy and God's sovereignty, then I ask you this question, who are you, man or God? 
you're a man, so deal with the man side of things. And I rejoice in both God's mercy and his sovereignty, and I don't choke on the bones of either side of that and try to figure all out what's in God's mind. I just trust God, which by the way, Job has to walk through God's sovereignty and his plan that is bigger than his, and he never gets an explanation, but he does end on trust. And one of the things I want to encourage all of us to do is trust God. People will throw stones at God, say he's mean, he's a dictator. He's... I look at God and I say, I see a merciful God. Yes, he's a God that's in control. I don't ask God why he did what he did and how he did what he did because I'm not God, but I see his mercy and he tells me through the words he uses, and the words are important, that here he either raised him up or he spared his life, or I say there's a combo of both and we watch what God does here. So as you look at this, uh, when Paul quotes it, it works either way. Uh, the context of this conversation, as we're looking at Exodus, so when we go to interpret Scripture, context means a lot. The context leans towards mercy, all right? So understand that. If I'm, if I'm going to be a fair interpreter of Scripture, it leans towards mercy. I don't want to negate the sovereignty portion, but the context says, I've I've spared your life so far so that I can execute or show my glory. Um, look at this. Pharaoh is still alive. What would we have done after the boils? All of us pretty much said it. Finished. But God says, you're still alive so that I can still show you. And what is God showing him? His glory. What's the kindest thing God can do for you? Have you see his glory. I said this to my Sunday school class, what's the most hateful thing you can do to somebody? Anyone in that class remember it? Tell them they're saved when they're not. This is God's love and mercy because he's trying, never going to fail. He's giving a chance to Pharaoh to see who God is yet again. Another option, another option, another option. And then he loses the firstborn and he sends him out and he comes back again. Talk about a guy persisting in the thing that God hardened, which he had started. And again, man's responsibility, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, God's sovereignty. The plagues are one of those things where it's all rolled together and you can chip away at it all you want. There it is. Um, you gotta kinda watch the ball roll a little bit. Regardless though, I want us to see this. God will show his power displayed in both his mercy and control and it will be his name declared. It will result in his glory which is exactly what should be taking place. You are left here as what? What does Paul say we're left as? We are his ambassadors. And what does an ambassador do? Represents. Represents their country. Who do you represent here on earth? Christ. And it is his glory that is your priority. And right here we're seeing God do that. Yet, what does Pharaoh do? He still delays. He's still going to hem and haw. Because what does it say? You're still exalting yourself over me. And so God predicts the coming hail and then gives an interesting insight. And I told you I'd beat this dead horse until it's beaten beyond dead. Uh, God gives an interesting insight. The plague is predicted. And then verse 19, a warning given. Does Egypt deserve a warning? Does, do they deserve a solution? 
No, I mean, think about this. God's already saying, I'm going to send hail and it's going to kill you and your livestock. And then God tells him something in verse 19. He says, send therefore now and gather thy cattle and all that thou hast in the field for upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field and shall not be brought home. The hail shall come down upon them and they shall die. So I'm sending hail that's going to kill your cows and your livestock and it's going to kill you. Now get inside. Go ahead and get, get inside. Get, get away from this. Don't, don't, be subject to this. And this is, I find fascinating is because up to this point, Pharaoh has had the opportunity to just slaughter his people, right? He's going to send them out. By the way, who do they leave out in the field? Think it's a lot of Egyptians? No. It's their slaves. It's the people that work for them. It's the nobodies. And so now the officials that are at least heeding the warning go and put their um, cattle and their people in a warning that some in Egypt heeded, not because they believed in God, by the way, but at least had enough sense to see the obvious. I'm afraid that we wouldn't be able to see the obvious always, but there it is. A reality that Pharaoh was too proud to see to the damage of his country and his people. He cared more for himself and his status than the well-being of the nation. Which, by the way, if you're a leader and you care more about yourself than your people, are you a good leader? So what does it tell you about Pharaoh? He's a great military guy. This guy's amazing. But he doesn't care about his people. That's the definition of a bad leader. I'm going to summarize 22 through 34. Hail comes all over Egypt, except where the children of Israel were. Can you imagine seeing that? If you're on the edge, it's like, wow, I just got to get over there. I got to get over that line. You know, and the hail's just following you as you walk because you're, you're part of the people that are getting punished. Uh, actually, Moses walks out into the hail from Pharaoh and not worried at all. Why? God's not going to hit him with hail. What, is that, what does that point to? Mercy and what? Control, sovereignty. I mean, he's, he trusts God not to hit him with hail that's coming down like rain. I don't think I have that trust. I'd be like, ah, oh, can we just do this from the palace? This would be all right. I'd like, to, I'd like to see his face when it stops. That would be, that'd be different, you know. But either way, here it comes. Um, based on the timing of the barley and flax, it would be around January. The Egyptians typically, by the way, don't put their cattle inside from January to April. They do put their cattle inside from April through the heat, heat of the season. And so when you think, oh, that's nice. God says put them in the shelter. And we think it's a rancher in Texas running 1,000 head of cattle. And how is he in the world? Well, probably in Texas they run 10,000. At least that's what they'll tell us. Um, that, that they're running, oh, how do they put them out of the shelter? no. They had shelter for their cattle. They would shelter their livestock when it was super hot. It's just that this time of the year, they don't typically put their livestock in shelter. So you put them in or you don't. Um, the hail and lightning and thunder that came down was like nothing they'd ever seen. And anything or anyone fell victim to the downpour. And then here's the thing. What a drastic, I just think, what if your neighbor put their cattle up and you didn't? And once the hail starts, can you do anything about it? I mean, you can change nothing on this one. And so you're watching this person who believed the warning and you didn't. You're losing all your cattle to hail. And that guy's just like, I don't know, maybe they got along, maybe they didn't. But there, there he sits with his animals and his people safe. And you just killed your people and you've killed your cattle due to your pride or the following of your leader's pride. Um, Pharaoh sends and calls for Moses and Aaron, and he admits he made a mistake. Um, the word there says, um, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous. And, and it sounds 
stronger than what he's emitting. The word for sin is missed the mark. And notice what's after I have sinned what? This time. You ever admit sin that way? That you're wrong this time, but maybe not wrong all the other times before that? And, and that word for sin is, you break it down, we do it when we talk about it on the Greek side, on the Hebrew side, it means I've missed the mark, I made a mistake. He's not saying he's not God anymore, or that God is better than him. He's just saying, eh, I missed this time. It's like playing darts and missing the bullseye. That's what he's basically saying. Ah, I threw that one. I threw that one off. My bad. And then he says he really wants the hail and thunderings, which they call God talking, to stop. So he promises to let them go. Moses says once he leaves, he'll ask God to stop the plague, but he makes clear that Pharaoh and his cronies do not respect God. He even says it to him. But you don't fear the Lord. You don't respect the Lord. I know that. And of course, the same cycle repeats. What does 34 and 35 tell us? He says, And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more. And what did he do to his heart? Harden his heart. Which speaks to what? It speaks to pride. But I thought last one, God had hardened his heart. He didn't get to make that call. Who made the call this time? Pharaoh did meaning he was able to make the call. I want you to see something. God hardened his heart, and now he hardened his own heart, which means God let him make what? His responsibility. Yeah, he gave him the choice again. He didn't have the choice up here. God hardened it. And now he has a choice. These are amazing. Again, I'm not going to dive into the water necessarily, but it is interchangeable. Man's responsibility and God's sovereignty is interwoven. You cannot separate it. Uh, the only way I know how to think through it is I always say God's side, your side, and then who are you, your man, think through what's there and recognize who God is. And he's far beyond us. Infinitely more wise, infinitely more right. I've talked to friends of mine and they wrestle so much with the sovereignty of God and they want to make God fair according to human standards. And I always say, I don't want God to be fair according to human standards. That's a horrible fate. Because there's no Genesis 3.15 and there's no dying on the cross and there's none of that if God is fair according to human standards. And that's coming back to trust God. But I do want to see the tension back and forth plagues and the change This keeps moving back and forth through the whole story. He comes here, obviously, um, cycle repeats, 35, and the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, which is fascinating to me, from one verse to the next. Uh, He sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants, And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, passive, neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. And you just cannot break the two things apart here. Um, Here's what's fascinating to me. Unredeemed Egyptians obeyed God because they saw the awesome display of his power. A bunch did not, especially Pharaoh, who ignored the obvious and and rested in their own pride. How does our world act today? Who are they like? Pharaoh, right? Is God's power obvious? Look, I have a degree in science. I'm not going to say I'm a genius. I'm not in science. I did well at tech. And I know some of you say, of course you did well at tech. It's easy to do well at tech, right? It's like it's an Ivy League school. But uh, either way, I'm in a science degree. I go to my professors and I confront them about evolution because I just cannot, in my mind, answer a question based on evolution. And those guys don't even want to, they don't even want to engage in the conversation. They're far more in intelligent than I am, but no one wants to talk about evolution versus creation because guess what they don't have? 
answers. They can write a book and they can be arrogant from the stage, but when you sit in their office and say, explain to me, okay, great. You believe evolution, prove it to me. Kenny, we're dealing with plants. Let it go. Let it be. Don't worry about it. Well, then don't ask questions about evolution. Fine. They don't. They actually took them out. <laughs> because there's no proof of it. There's nothing. And here's the reality. Our world acts like Pharaoh. They, they see around them. I mean, God is not hidden here. It's not like God is secret. He, he's there. It's obvious. It, it's in front of us. Yet they're going to ignore the obvious. Here's the even sadder connect. As believers, we lack the obedience that some of the unredeemed Egyptians did. We will ignore the obvious right of God and authority of God, and we're believers, and we act like Pharaoh, and there's unredeemed Egyptians who obeyed God because they actually could just see the obvious in front of them. And so I put here, don't let that be our sad reality. Uh, We should be the first to obey and not just for temporal gains. Uh, the Egyptians obeyed because they wanted to keep their what? Their lives. On a what level? Temporal. This world. They had their own gods. They weren't switching gods. We know the true God, and we know we're supposed to obey him for eternal reasons, and we can't even act like an unredeemed Egyptian. We're more like Pharaoh, and, and we resist what God wants to do. I put the call here as be responsive to the obvious truth and to obvious reality. Be responsive to God's character and attributes which are not hidden. When the world screams, and and there's people that write, and it's hard not to get infuriated with them, but they they mock God and they act like God is some petty, jealous God of the Old Testament. And there's guys that, I mean, they'll, they'll go after it. And they'll throw a lot of big fancy words and they'll act like they're super smart. And the net result is they're trying to attack God's character like God hid his character. And that's why I've been, I I would say, inundating us with this idea that every one of these plagues is God's mercy, God's mercy, God's mercy, God's mercy. What do we deserve? Death, right? We preach this. We we say this, right? When you talk to someone, what do they deserve? When someone tries to justify their life and say they should be in heaven because they're good enough, what do we always say, right? What's the answer to that? You're not, no one's good enough. You can't, you can't earn it. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. So take that, and then you look at these plagues that are just get un- unfolded. Why? To change their heart, for them to be responsive. Well, God re-instructs Moses to go back to Pharaoh, as God had hardened Pharaoh's heart so that God could demonstrate his power and glory, and then Pharaoh hardened his own heart because he's too proud, uh, too arrogant, which is the, the base sin that's there. That's why Satan fell, his pride. And so you're looking at the base sin kind of rising up against. It's like the rebellion again from heaven. And then God's testimony, and this is what I find fascinating. God sends Moses back and says, I'm going to display my power to him. And look at this, one and two. And the Lord said unto Moses, go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. So I just want you to see how many times this is switched on us. Don't gloss over it. Just read it and, and understand that's God's infinite wisdom. Pharaoh has hardened his heart. God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Circumstances have hardened Pharaoh's heart. Everything's hardened his heart. But now God's going to share something with um, Moses for him to teach Israel uh, and the heart of his servants that I might show these my signs before him and that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them that ye may know how that I am the what? And again, I want to remind us of God's mercy. He is, 
in the midst of a hardened Pharaoh that this is going to be used for God's purpose and God is going to use that to teach his people that he is God. And you're going to tell your son's son and everything else, and I'm running out of time, so I'm going to move quickly here. Uh, we get now onto the prediction of the next plague, which is locusts. If you look at 10, 5, and 6, and they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue, that which is escaped. And I'm going to kind of fast forward through some of this. What you're going to get with locusts is this massive infestation that blackens out the sky. What the hail didn't destroy, the locusts are going to what? They're going to eat. It's going to be gone. The officials push Pharaoh to let the men go. I want to mention this again about Bible study. Moses asked to let the what go? And the Pharaoh's advisor said, let the men go. Pharaoh actually listens to his advisors, calls Moses in, says, hey, you men go, go, but leave your women behind. Who goes? The men. I'll let the men go. That's what you want, right? He's negotiating. This is very typical for this time of, uh, in this culture. When Moses absolutely will not barter, it infuriates Pharaoh. He sends Moses out, which is just a, a, a display of power. I do want you to realize Pharaoh listened to his officials. He took their advice. They never said, send the people. They said, send the men, let them go. Uh, the Lord instructs Moses to stretch out his hand and the locusts come. Uh, chapter 10, 14 and 15. Of course, Pharaoh calls them back. So they entreat the Lord to take away this death. Why do they call locusts death? They're going to starve to death. Look, I want you to pick up on this. This is desperate. Now, this is just a side note. Who has cattle and who has crops? Israelites. Now, not only is he saying, let my people go, and we're going to take all the livestock with you, I'm going to take the only living livestock in Egypt with me. It's over. Everything's leaving. You can imagine the Egyptians are like, hey, let them go, but let's keep the keep the cows, let's keep the seed crop, let's keep what's here. We need this, otherwise we're not going to make it for the next decade. So there's a battle that goes on there. Um, the heart of Pharaoh is again hardened. Um, 1020, you see him come back around. He, he's going to lie yet again. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people of Israel go. And so Moses now, what typically happens on the third one? Do we ever have dialogue with Pharaoh? Usually it's just instantaneous. And then darkness is over the whole land. Now, you just had the lights out because of the locusts. Now the lights are really out. Who has ever been in oppressive darkness? It just feels like a weight. The only time I feel oppressively dark is if I'm in Nicaragua and the AC doesn't work in my room and it's nighttime. I don't know what it is about that. Um, but no AC in darkness feels like someone's choking me. Like I would just want to go sleep outside, but then the bugs will get me, so I don't do that. I, will I turn on the lights sometimes. I feel... I'm proving I'm crazy. I get that. But that's the only time in my life I feel like darkness is weighing down on me and it feels cooler with the light on. So never share a room with me in Nicaragua without air conditioning. Um, with air conditioning, lights out, no problem. No AC, need lights on. That's me. I can't imagine how intense this darkness felt. Now, who's the sun god? Ra? Ray? Ra? I think it's Ra. Ray's another one. They have a lot of Ray Ra's there. That's the God they worship every morning because the what comes up? And he goes down to the river to worship the river and worship the dawn. Guess what's not dawning? <laughs> the sun. And a lot of people say it's eclipse. It's, it's complete darkness for three days. Uh, there's a lot of conversation that goes on here. Um, Moses 
negotiates with Pharaoh yet again. And in this negotiation, uh, Pharaoh says, you can all go, but leave your cattle. And Moses says, no. Pharaoh says, you're never going to see my face again. Now, chapter 11, 1 through 3 is like a side note setting up the last plague. And then 4 through 10 is actually what took place before he leaves Pharaoh's presence. Okay, so when the darkness hits and he says no, Moses says the last plague is coming. That all that conversation goes because Pharaoh actually says to um, Moses, when you see my face again, you die. So what that implies, here's what Moses says, which I love. And Moses said, thou hast spoken well. I will see thy face again no more. In other words, I'm not worried. You're right. I won't see you again. I'm not looking at your face again. Now, in chapter 12, there's an indication either Pharaoh sent people or Moses talked to them. And again, it can be a hyperbole here. This can be anger. But um, before this plague of the firstborn dying, Moses does not see him. I don't think Pharaoh went and saw Moses again. I think that there, there likely was someone sent. I don't think Pharaoh was going to deal with anybody in his grief at that time and talk to anybody else. And so uh, there it is. I put here, and this is what it's building to, God's mercy in nine plagues, because now we're coming to, I think, what every parent would say they would never want to experience, to lose their child. And so Egypt is about to lose their firstborn and it came all the way to this, and I put, it's tragic to see how far they go in their resistance. Even after the catastrophe of a lost child, they're still thinking to bring Israel back to slavery, and they're going to lose their military, which we'll talk about. Uh, what's worse is we deal with the world that, what, resist God until they, what, die and face eternal death. And so, if nothing else, as you look at these plagues, and again, didn't get a chance to cover them to the depth I would have liked, but as you look at these plagues and read over them, don't miss the interchange between Pharaoh's heart and God hardening and Pharaoh hardening and it being hardened and this, this constant interchange that takes place. When I say inseparable, it's inseparable because it's just, it's rolled together in scripture. And then don't miss God's mercy as he builds to this last plague that he knew he'd have to bring about, but he did all of this so God would get glory and there was opportunity repetitively for Egypt to repent, and their resistance brought them all the way to what? Loss of the firstborn. And let's be honest, eternal loss that we don't even get a picture of here because they go on worshiping what gods? After all that proof, their own gods. After all seeing that, they still go chase gods of their own making. And you know why they have false gods? And it comes back to the same thing Pharaoh struggled with. We don't worship the true God because when you make up a God, you control what he does or she does. You give him the control you want. Uh, that's why there are so many gods with gross immorality associated with it. What better way to make up worship and then make up the sin you like to do the most and say, oh, that's how we worship the God. I mean, can't help it. You see that in the Greek mythology. You see that in Roman gods. You see that in Egyptian gods. They worshiped everything but God, which, by the way, if you read Romans 1, that is Romans 1, 20, and 21. That's what humanity did. As they sinned, reject the true God, you're going to find a worship of some type. There's only two types of worship, worship of the true God and worship of another. And it's either a manifestation of yourself or your desires or some crazy dream, you name it, it's a false god.